In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. A man needs to be able to battle. And I don't mean be a brawler or fight other men necessarily. But a lot of what we have to do as men is battle. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena Podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your host for today's show. Guys, thanks so much for making the Men in the Arena Podcast Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men. And guys, I gotta tell you, I'm excited about today's guest. He actually is one of my favorite non-Christian authors out there. He's written some excellent, excellent historical books about famous figures, as well as books specifically targeting men. But before we get into our podcast interview with Stephen Mansfield, I want to share one man law with you today. Guys, our man laws are supplied by you, our heroes. And when we use one of yours, hit us up at info at menandarena.org with your address, and we'll send you some men in the arena swag just to say thank you. This man law actually is a little bit uh, controversial. Uh, it's from Bryce on Instagram, and I love this man law, by the way. He says, if a man's flies down, that's his problem. You didn't see anything. Now, when I read that, I laughed. I thought, oh, heck yeah. Then I thought, wait a second. I just told a dude I saw a couple months ago his fly was down, so I broke a man law. So we did some research. We threw it out there on Instagram as on all of our platforms as a survey, and of the like 59,000 guys that are somehow connected to our platforms, 89% of the guys on our platform said, yes, you need to tell that guy. So uh, Bryce, I love the man law. Don't agree with it, but I love it. It's great. Hit us up. We want to take care of you. I also want to add this. If a woman's fly is down, you did not see a thing. I mean, don't even, I mean, don't even flinch. Eyes straight ahead. Oh my gosh. So uh, anyway, thanks a lot. <laughs> Bryce, that's a great man law, man. Hey, want to share with you a hero story from Instagram? And I don't have the guy's name here, but I thought this is interesting. And you may think, well, why is this a hero story? I want to explain. He said, I'm 30 years old and really feel like I've lost my way in life. I've lived alone for the past five years in a four-bedroom house, not understanding what's next for me. I continue to volunteer with the teens at my church youth group. I just feel like I'm kind of overall missing it in life. Nothing is clear to me, and I get stressed and anxious with it. And I virtually never hear any encouragement for men in my situation. The reason this is a hero story, guys, is it takes a lot of guts for a guy to sit down and send this and say, you know what, I, I need some help. I need some encouragement. Help me out. And so, man, we I really appreciate this guy's boldness. So if you hit us up on uh, at info at menandarena.org, we want to send you some swag for being a man enough of a guy to say, hey, I don't have it all figured out. Hey, guys, I'm excited uh, to have on our show today Stephen Mansfield. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this guy's writing. He's authored over 25 books, and I have to confess I haven't read the historical books, but I have read all of his books on men, including The Search for God in Guinness, which, if you remember, was episode 130 on the Men in the Arena podcast, uh, including Mansfield's Book of Manly Men and today's book, 
Men on Fire. Stephen Mansfield's a New York Times best-selling author and popular speaker. He first rose to global attention with his groundbreaking book, The Faith of George W. Bush, a bestseller that Time Magazine credited with helping shape the 2004 U.S. presidential election. That is pretty cool. He's the founder and president of Great Man Global, teaching men worldwide the philosophy, art, and skills of manly excellence and equipping them to combat toxic masculinity wherever it may be found. He currently resides between Nashville, Tennessee, and Washington, D.C. with his beautiful wife, Beverly. Stephen, it's great to have you on the show, man. Man, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Yeah, it's always fun when I see uh, a new book came out. And I, I'd seen Men on Fire scrolling through my uh, Instagram feed, and I thought, I need to hit this guy up and get him back on the show. So thanks for saying yes and being out here, and we want to sell a lot of books for you today. Uh, you're very kind, very kind. And I appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. Congratulations on your success. Thank you so much. Hey, can you give these guys a little bit of background, about five minutes of your personal story? Well, I was raised a military brat in the home of an army colonel uh, growing up, lived in Europe most of the time, uh, and during my teen years, lived in Berlin, Germany, behind the Iron Curtain, which was pretty pretty amazing experience. Wow. Uh, came back to the States, played football, became a Christian at the age of 18, turned down a college football scholarship, went to a Christian university, and out of that, uh, be, went on to pastor, uh, co-pastor and pastor church uh, in Texas, and then another one in Nashville. But I was the kind of guy who always knew he wouldn't pastor forever. It wasn't that I was unhappy pastoring. It's just that I, I had a desire to get into the mainstream of the culture, articulate the faith in those realms. I knew I'd work in politics. I, I knew I'd work in international affairs. And so uh, at about the age of 40, I transitioned out of the pastorate uh, and began to do what I do now. The first, the first major thing that happened was that I wrote The Faith of George W. Bush, which, as you've already said, New York Times bestseller and um, was involved in that election with George Bush, um, and that that positioned me. That allowed me to be in media, you know, Fox, CNN, MSNBC a lot. Um, gave me a voice here in D.C. and led to other books. And I've written a lot since. And as soon as I began to get sort of a platform worth anybody paying attention to, um, I be, I continued to feel what I'd felt my whole life, uh, at least my whole Christian life. Uh, the grieving about the state of manhood in our generation. So I began to twist the arms of my publishers to let me write books. And as you've said, I've written Mansfield's Book of Manly Men. Uh, I've written a book called Building Your Band of Brothers and Now Men on Fire. I'll probably write more. But uh, and I started or started an organization called Great Man, dot, uh, Great Man Global, as you say, website greatman.tv. And I have committed a good portion of the rest of my life in addition to what I do in D.C. and what I do internationally, et cetera. I'm also senior fellow at a, at a university, senior fellow of public leadership at a university. But a lot of my future is going to be about impacting men. So I'm delighted that we're talking about what we're talking about today. Well, I, I believe wholeheartedly that men are the cause of a lot of the world's pain and suffering, but they're also the solution. So we've got to fix the man. If we fix the man, we're going to fix our society. So I really appreciate uh, guys that have platforms like yours reaching out to men. And so I was really excited to see your book, Men on Fire. And I want to, I want to quote you from that book and ask you a question. So you said, my goal in this book is to ignite fires in your soul. I want to recover what has been lost. I want to set fire to what has been doused. I want to see you live out manhood on fire. So when you use the phrase fires in your soul and manhood on fire, what does that mean to you? What do you, what do you want to see happen with a man's soul? Well, let me say it this way, and it's going to sound like I'm being a little bit critical, but I, but I really am not being. Uh, I, I have been involved in churches since 1976 when I became a believer, and I have loved the men I've known and loved the men that I've walked with. But even men who are in men's ministries and even men who attend the big conferences and promise keepers and what have you, sometimes I notice that there's not the fire in the belly that ought to be there when you're connected to God and living out your purpose. Again, I don't mean that critically. I love my love the, love my male Christian friends, um, and so I began to pay attention to why that was the case. Uh, for years, while I was pastoring, after I began to work in what I'm doing now, writing politics, media, um, I would pay attention to what's going on with men. Why are even Christian men, even Christian men who are good men at home, good husbands, good fathers? There's not the fire in the belly. There's not the passion sometimes. I'm not saying all of them, but sometimes. Um, there's, a, there's a little passivity. 
uh, there's less than mm-hmm. just being engaged. I mean, you know, a guy can watch a football game and get more lit up than he is about being a man. Um, that's fine sometimes, but I, I wanted I wanted to figure out why. And so over the years, as I took notes and typical writer, always taking notes, always observing, um, I, be, I came up with seven facets, seven fires, as I call them in the book, um, that I found very, at various levels missing from the souls of many men. They're not the kinds of things that tend to get talked about a lot in a men's movement, uh, Christian or non. They're not the kinds of things that coaches talk about or men's leaders tend to talk about primarily. Um, but I have found that when these are reignited in the soul of a man, that they can be transforming. And they can they can cause him to be a fiery, noble, great, righteous man. So that's why I wrote the book. It's a it's a it's a part two. It's the next step. It's the thing you do after you've already accepted the fact you were created a man um, at, at God's hands, and that you are you know uh, that you've got your basic Christian code, your basic moral code, and you know you're not you're not doing all the things we're not supposed to do. You're trying to do all the things we're supposed to do, but still there's some kind of ignition that needs to happen. And uh, I describe in the book, I'm sure you read that portion where I say that in physics, uh, fire happens when other, other things are rightly in place and rightly connected. When other, actually, fire is the product of, ch- of change of elements. So I'm calling men to change so that fires can be ignited in their souls. Yeah, that's so good. You know, in the book you wrote early on the pages, you said, I see empty souls. I see men without fire, men who do not know who they are or what they are meant to be, and then, you, and then you mentioned that you often see that guy in the mirror, and I want to just give you something I noticed about the book. So I've read four of your books so far, and of all books I've read of yours, you were by far in this book the most vulnerable personally. And so I don't know if you did that on purpose, but you were clearly sharing stuff that I thought was you know kind of unveiling or stripping away the veneer so and giving men permission to do the same. Yeah, there, there's there's two aspects to that. Uh, part of it is a decision to write a different kind of literature. Now, mm-hmm. I'm a PhD. I'm a university professor. You know, I can I can function at that level. Um, but I I want to change men's lives, and I'm not convinced that just throwing abstract knowledge out does that alone. Um, so, so part of it was, I, I believe in the power of story. I believe in the power of sort of relationship on the page. If I welcome men into my story, they can connect to it. They can see themselves. And they also don't think I'm the arrogant schmuck writing a book, telling everybody else how they ought to be as perfect as I am. The other thing is that I'm a little bit older. Uh, I've, I've had, I've got some scars on me. I've lived through some things. I'm, I'm not ancient, but I'm, but I've, I've got some experience under my belt. And so why shouldn't I be a father in this movement, so to speak, or at least an older brother? Um, why, what, what's, what's the harm in me saying that I had a troubled relationship with so-and-so or that I, I messed up my life uh, or, or, or went through a horrible time in the, when I was in my early 40s? What, what's wrong with that? Um, I, I've been to a divorce and, uh, it, it, you know, it was, I, it, I can say that, you know, it wasn't exclusively my fault, but it was also my fault. Why can't I talk about that? What's the harm? So, um, and I have a, lar- a, a phenomenal wife and a phenomenal marriage now. So why not talk about those things? I think we're living in a generation where the young want the raw truth. Uh, we're living in a generation where people don't mind hearing negatives, um, Preachers, Christian leaders of 50, 60 years ago would never have admitted an addiction or something difficult. I don't have an addiction, but I've had difficult things happen. I, just, I, I think I made the decision, and it was partially a function of age, that if I wanted to impact lives, I needed to come with a greater level of transparency. And the, t- the topics in this book fit that uh, self-disclosure well. And so I have to tell you, just a little humorously, it's a little funny to be walking through an airport and have somebody come up and know about my grandfather and my father and what food I like. And, you know, so in other words, the, the oddity is that, yeah, now, Stephen, you told everybody about your life and now they know it. And um, so it's it's funny to have perfect strangers walk up and, you know, know about that story that happened when I'm 13. But still, I'm 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 delighted that they know about my life if it helps them to take hold of the best they can be. And that, I think that's what's happening. When I asked the question, I, I when I read that, because I'm a guy that follows you, I follow your writing, I love what you do, and I thought, man, this is a a transition, a transformation. It was I, I thought that you had really grown as an author to reach a younger generation, 
that really doesn't look for a hero. They're looking for someone to make them a hero. So I applaud that. I thought that was a very, very well played, very well done. And so I appreciate you doing that. So I did not see that as, I never see that as a sign of weakness. I see that as a sign of strength. So I just want to applaud you for that. I appreciate that. You know, I, I think I would have been served better in my life. I grew up in a, a military brat, as I've said. Um, so the military is not a situation where guys are going around talking about their souls. Uh, yeah. And then I was involved in athletic world, that same there. So I think I, I look back and I realize I would have been better served had people been a little bit more transparent with me. If my yeah. military commander father had ever said, um, you know, when I was 16, such and such happened. I mean, he never said anything like that. But man, if he had said, yeah, girls were my downfall or, you know, I had two, I, some guys snuck a whiskey bottle behind the gym and we all drank it during the prom and I regret it or whatever. I don't even know what it was. It didn't have to be about alcohol or girls, but whatever. It would have changed my <laughs> life to have some kind of personal example from my father. So I'll tell you what, in a largely unfathered generation, I'll just offer my fathering to them and do exactly what I would have needed. So I think it's, I think it's producing some good fruit and I appreciate you putting your finger on it. Yeah. Well done, man. Well done. So let's dive into the seven fires listed in your book. Uh, these are, and you're, you're right. These surprised me a little bit. They were a little bit more obscure, but as you dug into them, I thought, yes, yes. And yes. So the first fire starts off with a wonderful story of you in a high school gymnasium, uh, with another, uh, guy helping teach. And I, I'll be honest with you. It had me crying early on. I was kind of weeping over the story. So the first fire is the fire of heritage. And then you said, so, mo so most men tend to live without the transforming power of heritage in their lives. And you mentioned that this occurs for a number of reasons. Can you walk us through that assembly and the magic that happened there? Yeah. You know, today I live largely in a black world. My, I've got six or seven African-Americans in my family. I go to an African-American church in D.C. Back then, though, I was just in college. Uh, and a professor friend of mine was asked to give a talk at a, a largely black inner city high school. And he was the whitest professor in the history of the world, man. Bow tie wearing, <laughs> Kaylee. And I mean, he just uh, he's just that kind of guy. And I thought, and we went to that high school. Now, I'm very comfortable with African-Americans. Don't misunderstand. But a high school you know, assembly with a bunch of bored high school kids, I don't care what color they are or where they are in the world. I'm just thinking, Lord, have mercy. This guy is not going to hold this audience. He got up and he said, basically, I'm going to tell you what people of your skin color have accomplished in history. And he took off on a romp, baby. He talked about kings. He talked about. Uh, blacks in the Bible. He talked about black African civilizations being far superior to his own. Uh, you know, he was he was from a Celtic background, and so he said the Celts were way behind African American civilizations. And he just took off, and then he did a riff for about twenty minutes that lit the room on fire. He said, "If you like potato chips, thank a black man because so and so, and I don't know the man's name. Let's say Chris Johnson created those. He was a he was a chef at such and such hotel in San Francisco." If you use an ironing board, if you, you know, he just took off. And uh, I mean, it went on for 20 minutes. When he was done, people were in tears. Kids were applauding. And what was it? He had told them who their people were. Now, they all knew, you know, Sojourner Truth or Malcolm X. But here, this bow tie wearing white man sat there and told them what their heritage was. And I tell it humorously in the book, I'm not going to steal the stories now, but I mean, kids were coming up and hugging both of us. I had not a thing but sit there and worry, wonder where the exits were. Um, but what happened in that room is heritage. That, that group of young people who knew something of their heritage had learned the value of who they are, the genius, the creativity of African-Americans through history. And it changed them. We, we heard about that for years. Those, those, those administrators in that school wrote us for years to tell us what had happened. And the reason is, I'll go ahead and step into, just set up your next question. The reason is we are made, and men in particular, are made to live with the nobility of our past, mm. not just our personal or our family past, but the, but the past of our people flowing through our souls. And because of broken families and historical ignorance and perhaps the negatives in our past, um, most of us aren't walking in the power of that, but it's one of the fuels that ought to light the fires in our souls. 
Yeah, that's really good, man. You talk about broken the broken family structure and historical ignorance revolving around the family. You know, I was just came I just came into our family history. Uh, some family members wrote a family history of my Portuguese uh, heritage, and it was life changing. It's so important. So, so we have a lot of guys listening to this podcast. They're driving to work. They're thirty to fifty years old. Uh, half of them are from divorced families. You know, how does a guy like that reclaim the fire of heritage or begin to? build the fire of heritage in his children. What would you tell that man? I believe that every man should try to pass on to the next generation uh, what he has mined of his own family's history, the nobility of it. And, he, and by the way, you didn't have to get a doctorate in history to do this. Just learn the stories, ask them the, the good things, uh, and also his people, whatever his people are, however, however you want to define your people. Um, in my case, that's, you know, largely Celtic. I'm a Celtic mutt, you know, lar largely Scots-Irish. Um, and somewhere I got a little bit of darker skin than most white people. I don't know where that came from, but I, that's my <laughs> heritage. So my, my point is that you, you want to begin to ask questions. You want to begin to find out what happened. Uh, the, the, our whole society is interested in this. All the TV shows like, who do you think you are? All the shows sponsored by ancestry.com and so on. Um, you, you want to find out who you are. Now, this, this doesn't have to be doing a master's degree. This is just asking questions, writing down a few notes. Ask the oldest person in your family. Tell me about dad. What about dad's war experience? Whatever, you know. Now, in my case, it was a little bit easier because I, my father and my grandfather were both highly decorated military commanders. So God knows we had addictions and deformities and messes in our, li in our family life, but they were war heroes. Well, so I knew I could pass that on to the next generation. But then also I did a little bit of research and my mother had done some research to help us all become sons and or daughters of the American Revolution. So you have to know that history. So I would tell my kids, you know, my, my father, for example, was awarded a medal for saving a lot of people, people's lives in Vietnam. And so I made sure my kids knew that. I made sure they knew the history. I'd talk about that. We'd tell that story around the fire or whatever. Um, and also we would do other things like uh, in New England at Thanksgiving, they have this tradition where they put five kernels of corn on each plate right before Thanksgiving dinner, just to remember the starving time at Plymouth and what the pilgrims went through and, and to be grateful for it. Well, we did that in our home. So now I've got kids who are in their thirties with kids, you know, grand, I got grandkids and daughters-in-law and all that kind of thing. Um, but my kids will balk at me if we start going to the Thanksgiving dinner and start to pray without having put five kernels of corn on the plate. Why? Because their mother and I passed heritage onto them it lives in them, and they want it acknowledged. My daughter went through some tough stuff during COVID. She was also up in New York during some of the riots there and marched with some of her black friends and so on. And she said to me on a phone call, Dad, if granddad could save those lives in Vietnam, I can get through this. Now think about that comment. My daughter's a 31-year-old pretty uh, New Yorker. I don't know why she went to New York, but you know, clearly she's been led astray. But she's up there in New York. <laughs> And here she is draw, drinking from the well of my father, my grand, my father's heroism. And she's drawing from that to get through some hard things that happened during the heaviness of COVID in New York. Well, that's what heritage does. It, it, it puts a fire inside of you. It says stuff is flowing through my, my veins that is good and honorable. And by the way, almost all families have got mixed history, right? So, you know, Uncle Joe went to prison or you know, like in my background, I've just told you about that, my connection to African-Americans these days, but I've got ancestors who were in the Klan on one side of my family. No question. Mm -hmm. I got just stone racists, killed black people, hung them and lynched them. Um, and and so, you know, that there's negative. Well, we learned from that too. You know, my daughter, my son hugged their, uh, their black cousins. And, and, uh, we talk about these kinds of things openly, but, the, but, but the, the other side is the good stuff is part of the nobility. So they even take that negative history as kind of a commission to change race relations in our, in our generation. So every man should have flowing in him and in his mind a sense of what lives in him by virtue of his ancestors' deposit. And that's just a matter of knowing some stories, knowing the lives, knowing some general stuff. Um, and in the book, I even tell the story of a, of a young Hispanic man who had no knowledge of history at all, and his father was in prison. 
But he learned a story about what his father did in prison, and they went on and built an entire charity based on that story. Um, and it, it, that one story was like the diamond and the dunghill of his family's past. But he was able to build uh, a sense of heritage out of it. And now he's transformed all the generations coming coming afterwards. And so the way I would summarize this is, I'm sure all of the guys listening to this podcast have watched Rudy. If not, they are definitely not going to heaven. You got to watch the movie Rudy to go to heaven. For sure. And you remember the point at which the the father is sitting on the bus bench with Rudy, and I'm not giving the movie away to say he says. Well, actually, the better way to do this briefer is to say at the end of the movie, text comes up and it says Rudy graduated from Notre Dame and all of his younger brothers and sisters graduated also. Yep. So yep. because Rudy broke through and did something cool, that story lived in the lives of his of, of the, his descendants. And I've, by the way, met Rudy Rudiger and not just his his brothers and sisters who were younger, but cousins, grandchildren, everybody goes to college in that family now because Rudy broke through. And that, that that's the power of a heritage, a story that lived in their souls that inspired them, moved them on to greatness. And that's what we're meant to be about. Yeah, I'm a huge storyteller with my sons. Uh, we've got a, we've got a rich history. We've got an Abraham Lincoln's a cousin. Uh, I had another relative came across. He was uh, arrested at, at the Jacobite Rebellion on a boat over. He befriended the captain who made a phone or made a phone call, uh, talked to a, a cousin. Uh, the cousin hired him, taught him the art of surveying. And that cousin's name was uh, Martha Washington. And we have a relative, David Hume, that taught George Washington how to survey. So telling the stories with our children because they realize, man, there's greatness in our family. And so this is so important. I'm a huge fan of the story and the power that it brings. And it's so good. And you talked about, you know, you have war heroes in your family. And I thought that's a, that's a great story and learning of those in our family who have fought for our country, uh, but which kind of leads the second the second fire. You talk about the fire of battle, and you wrote in your book, "We're not meant to have our battle won for us. We're not meant to dissolve into softness and luxury because previous generations have won a measure of victory for us." Oh man, that's so true. And then you continued, "We have battles of our own." to fight. So what do you mean here by fire of battle? We need to transcend the softness and continue to fight these battles. Well, a, a, a man needs to be able to battle. And I don't mean be a brawler or fight other men necessarily, but a lot of what we have to do as men is battle. We battle for self-mastery. Mm -hmm. We battle to uh, keep ourselves in good shape. We battle to earn a living for our families. We might have to battle spiritually for a child who's battling depression or for uh, you know, an eating disorder for a daughter or what have you. We battle for the wholeness of our, our wives, both in our prayer lives and also in our, uh, in our coaching of them or counseling of them or encouraging of them or the way we love them. Uh, a lot of what a man does is a matter of battle. And by the way, I think, I think most men need to be ready for actual physical combat. I mean, at yeah. least be able to, prepare, to, to, to protect, protect your home. I'm not saying you got to be all armed up all the time. That's up to you. Uh, I have a concealed weapons permit, and uh, that's one kind of battle I'm thinking about. I carry a weapon when I need to. I uh, never had to use it, thank God. I hope I never have to. I'm not a violent guy. But we need to know how to do these things uh, in, in our generation and every generation. So for me, the issue is not so much the kind of battle you might be called to, um, but it's the fact that you have the fire of battle on the inside of you and you're willing to battle. And our easy lives and the battles that have been won for us by our ancestors uh, free us often from having to think in terms of, of, of being warriors. That's a little bit easier for me because of what I've already told you, and that is I grew up in the home of a warrior, fought in Iran, uh, fought in Korea, fought in Vietnam. I've watched men march. I've watched Howard's fire. My grandfather, the same thing. Not uncommon for me to be sitting at the at the family dinner table in the evening, and there are two men fully dressed out in their uniforms. You know what I'm saying? Um, so that's so I'm a little closer to martial culture than most men. No, no, no credit to me. Um, other men may have to reach for it a little bit more. Statistically, most men in our generation don't have somebody in their family who's been in the military, and they haven't been in the military. But still, whether you're, we're speaking about spiritual warfare or we're, or we're speaking about uh, the kinds of warfare I've just listed uh, for weight and for health and for wholeness and for protection of the family, um, we need to be we need to have uh, a warrior's thinking and a warrior's skill and a, war a warrior's awareness of the evils that lurk in this generation. You know that resonates with me, Stephen, because I think that we live in a culture that's very soft. 
uh, because we've been given so much. And and I read something in your book that you know I've been teaching the Bible for thirty years, and you know I love it when I hear something. I'm like I've never heard this. And you quote First Corinthians six nine, which says, "Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers, nor adulterers nor the effeminate." Or and you continue, but you you mention this Greek word malakos. And I just was so intrigued by this word and how you tied it in to this concept of, uh, of having a fire of battle. Can you unpack Malakos for us? Sure. Malakos is uh, translated, at least in the old versions of the Bible, as feminine. Um, but it means more than that. Uh, it means to be soft through luxurious living to the point of perversion. Um, wow. we get our word malleable from it. You know, if, if he's morally malleable, he's not, he's not fixed and firm. You know, if, if the, if the putty is malleable, then it's, it can be formed. Uh, but it means more than that in the Greek In the Greek, it means that uh, we live luxurious lives. We become soft and perversion results. Well, if there's ever a word that describes manhood in our generation, that's it. I mean, most of us yep. wouldn't think of ourselves as a super rich, but by the, by the context of history, we're, we're in the top two, 2%, 1% of all of history. Uh, you know, most of us aren't thinking about the police kicking in the door. We're not going to miss a meal. We got a supercomputer in our pockets. You know what I'm talking about. We live very luxurious oh, lives. Yeah. Um, and that has a, a, an ability to, the old thinking would have been to use the word feminize, but I don't think that captures it because I don't think of myself as, all fe as at all feminine. But I do think of myself as a man who can become soft to the point of perversion through luxurious living. And so uh, th that word really helps me. And by the way, you know, not to be too harsh here, but you and I both know because you've, you've looked at that scripture in context that that's a list of uh, things that, are, that keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. <laughs> so God's looking for some guys. He wants yes, some brothers not to be perverse. It's a, it's a, it's a big list. Yeah, it's a scary list. Well, it's a scary list. And by the way, that word is not translated homosexuality. There's another word in that list that's translated homosexuality. So this is different. And I, and of course, you know, when you're translating the Bible, I've worked with some Bible translators in my life and you know, they don't, they don't have six words, six sentences to describe one word. They got to find one word to use. So they use, you know, they use uh, feminine or something else. But when you can break out the Greek a little bit, and I've just had, like a lot of guys, a chance to study a little Greek, um, you start to realize how pregnant that language is. And that, that word convicts me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a perverse guy, and I don't live my life completely in luxury. But, when I, you know, but I live a pretty luxurious life, just like all of us do, and I, now, I, now I see it as potentially deforming of me. And I think we all need to see it that way. So... That word really is the opposite of having a warrior spirit. A warrior spirit says, I got to work out today. A warrior spirit says, I got to acquire new skills. A warrior spirit says, I'm going to stand guard at the, at the spiritual perimeter of my home and make sure nothing evil comes in. You know, on and on and on. I could go on for six hours about what a warrior spirit does. And so the opposite of that is to be fat and spiritually fat and uh, per perverted through luxurious living. And that's exactly what's happening to our generation. So to know that word and to hold it up against uh, yeah. being being the warriors we're called to be, I think is important. Yeah, that's so powerful, man. Let's let's move on to the next uh, fire, and this is the fire of destiny. Can you dis and you talk about when you're talking about destiny? You know, we tend to think of destiny as linear. You throw the fastball. I don't care how fast it is. I'm going to get my rhythm. I'm going to hit it out of the park. But you mentioned the curveball and destiny. What have you discovered about the greatest men in history? And you've written about many of them. One of my favorites is actually Booker T. Washington. I mean, I just, that guy, wow. So you talk about the curveball. What have you learned about the curveball and greatness? Every great person I've studied, and that's really what I do with a lot of my life. I, I study men and women in history, and I bring out the principles of their greatness. For every single one of them, see what we would like is that the idea of destiny is just a straight, clear line. We begin, we know where it's going, it follows a clear path, and then, and then we achieve our destiny. It just doesn't work that way. Destiny is a curveball. One one person in history said, de "Destiny is a wicked winch," meaning he was having fun, meaning that you never know exactly where it's where it's going, and so you 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 sense that you have a destiny to be a great leader one day but now you're flipping burgers burgers at McDonald's you sense like i was that i had a calling mm. to impact my generation but i'm loading chickens that are pooping all over me into a into a truck for Campbell's soup all day long so dirty i can't even get in my car when the day's over um, and not just dirty with dirt by the way dirty with chicken poop 
I could go on and on and on. You, 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 you feel like you're called to something. You have a sense of destiny. You believe what the scriptures say, perhaps, if you're a Christian um, uh, or you're a Bible lover, about a God having prepared works for in advance for you to do. You love that idea. But there you are sitting in a cubicle, you know, hammering out paperwork for a boss that doesn't appreciate you. And so the, the lesson that I'm teaching in that is that God, you have a destiny, but God has a winding road for you to get to that destiny. He's got to teach you stuff. He's got to teach you character. He's got to have you be not appreciated by somebody. He's got to work you through some humility. He's got to teach you some skills. He's got to teach you some patience. He's got to have you love the unlovely. He's got to have you, you know, and I'm a little older probably than most of your audience. So I can say that I hated some of the periods in my life where I was going through my paces. But now I see where I acquired skills that I that are essential to what I'm doing now. So one of the one of the things I really hate about uh, the conclusions people can draw about my life um, is that well, hey, I'd like to, many people all come up to me and I'm grateful that for the compliment. Man, I sure would like to have your life traveling around, speaking everywhere, writing books, being on television. And I want to say, well, you then you go haul chickens. Uh, and get get dressed in chicken poop for maybe you know six months, and then then you go uh, pastor a church in a small town in Texas, you know, and then maybe you go to this, maybe you go to that, you know. Um, it's in other words, we to get to fulfill our destiny, we have to go through the winding road of all the lessons God wants to teach us. As we talk about this fire of destiny, you know, I love the phrase "God turns our mess into our message." you know, that, that God turns our tragedy into a trophy. What would you say to a man? And we've got a lot of them, Stephen, you know, we will have thousands upon thousands of men listen to this podcast. What would you say to those men who are in the middle of a mess? Life's thrown them a curveball, and they bailed out of the, of the batter's box. What would you say to that man? Listen, there is a God. He created you and he set a path for your life. And you've got to trust him. I mean, look at scripture. Look at the life of Joseph. Look at the life of Paul. For that matter, look at the life of Jesus. Nobody's life was just a straight line upward to glory, we'll call it. Upward to fame, if that's what they were called to. I mean, and, and I, I could talk to you about Churchill. I could talk to you about so many of my heroes, Lincoln. Um, who had battles. Lincoln had Lincoln almost killed himself. He was suffering such horrible depression. I could go on and on and on. And so at any one stage of your life, you only see the immediate. You aren't God. You don't see the back of the, you don't see the front of the tapestry. You ever seen a tapestry? The front's all beautiful, but the back's all full of strings and glue and everything. That, mm-hmm. That's where that's what the weaver saw. So God is weaving a destiny. The old Celts used to call him the destiny weaver. But you're not going to see it. So you got to have the humility to trust that he's going to make something great out of your life uh, without, without looking at the whole in terms of every stage. And by the way, one thing that will encourage all these guys is, first of all, read the biographies of great men and women. And second of all, go to some people you admire and say, tell me about the dark days. Tell me about the hard times. I've had the privilege of being with a lot of famous people in my life. And it's easy to look at them and go, well, they just fell from the womb perfect. And five days later, they were world famous. You know, it's that kind of thing. But no. You start asking the serious questions. Mm-hmm. These guys battled stuff. They went through marital strife. They had health challenges. They got beat up. Hard, hard, hard things. You're seeing them on the mountaintop, but it took a long time to climb that mountain. So I say this with love to those of you who are out there, as Jim has described, but I want you to know you have an immature understanding of destiny if you think you can look at where you are now and understand yes. the whole. Trust God, humble up. But do get some inspiration because it's hard to go through these individual seasons without having, you know, the pages of history, the pages of scripture, and your own your own band of brothers encouraging you along the way. Oh, band of brothers. Thanks for teeing that one up for me. <laughs> I appreciate that. Let me say this one thing before we move on to the fire number four. Guys, listen, do not exchange the immediate for the ultimate. Do not despise humble beginnings. It's okay to go through a desert, a valley of shadow of death, a season of obscurity. You need to walk through that. That's what the great ones do. Hang in there. You've got this. So, guys, let's move on to uh, our fire number four. Now, this one here, this one's this one here. I, I'm like, okay, I have beat these guys up so much with this fire. I, I just don't know what to do here. I'm beside myself. It's the fire of friendship. 
It's the fire of friendship. And you wrote, we're made to have men in our lives who inspire us. We're made to be close to men who make us better merely because we remember the covenants we've made and the challenges we've issued and the expectations they've laid in our lives. We are meant to laugh and hurt and yearn and strive and, yes, achieve because we have a noble band of brothers. Can you walk us through this? I mean, we have guys listening to this who are still resistant to getting involved with a band of brothers. What can you tell us? Let me tell a story from the book real quick. Somebody handed me a picture not too long ago. It's a picture of a, something I seen at a party. When I looked at the picture, I saw the guy who was in the picture, and I said, "Who's this?" And the photographer, an African American friend of mine, said, "It's you, fool." And I looked at that picture. I got to tell you, I had, was halfway through a blink, so I looked like I was drunk, even though I wasn't drinking anything. I had about sixteen Oreos in my mouth, so I looked like Jabba the Hut on a bad day. Um, my T-shirt was pulled over my tummy. I was sunk <laughs> down on an old couch on this guy's hunting, hunting lodge. It was the worst picture of a human being ever taken. And I remember looking at that picture thinking, if I can look that way on the outside and not know it, I I didn't know it was possible for me to look that bad. Mm. What's going on on the inside of me that I don't know? Now, I want friendship with men because I'm made to just have fun with men. I love guys. I love grilling up some steaks. I love playing racquetball, whatever, having fun, talking smack. I love man culture. But I got to tell you, I know now, and I'm saying this to you guys too, you will not achieve what you are meant to achieve. You will not become the man you are meant to become if you do not have a band of brothers around you. A band of brothers are men who have permission to address anything in your life that needs to be addressed to make you a better man. And so I love the fun of man culture, but I need a band of brothers because I need a group of guys with whom I share a free fire zone. I'm not using that necessarily in the military sense, um, do I understand what it means, Free fire zone means that anything that needs to be said to make any of us better will be said. Nobody's going to be wringing their hands saying, I hope somebody talks to Joe. Uh, I need guys who know my life without me narrating it, and so do you. We can't, we, this idea of an accountability group, where once a month we drive across town and tell a bunch of guys what's wrong with us and ask them to fix us, it ain't going to work. You're assuming that I know what's wrong with me. You're assuming I'm going to have the courage to tell a bunch of guys. You're assuming I'm going to remember it three weeks from now. And you're assuming that those guys are going to have any wisdom for me. I need guys close to me who know my life without me narrating it. If they see me gaining weight, if they see me dropping the F-bomb, if they hear the bitter conversation on the cell phone with my wife, if one glass of wine becomes 10 in an evening, whatever. I'm making all this up, by the way, but I'm just saying um, I need guys who know what's wrong in my life without me narrating it. And so all of us do as well. Uh, we, we, we laughed about maybe Hillary Clinton's book that to raise a child that takes a village, but it does take a village of men to make a great man. And previous generations had that automatically. You were born into the tribe. You were born into the township. You were born into extended families that had three generations under one roof. But now all that gets destroyed. And so you've got to be intentional about the men around you. You've got to build a band of brothers. Okay. Three times you said a phrase, and I want you to unpack it a little bit. So, you know, the guys listening to this podcast only understand two-syllable words. So this one was... Okay, so I'm just messing around, but you said three times, I need guys who know my life without narrating it. Can you just unpack that a little more? Sure. Uh, Jim, let's say that you and I consider each other uh, our, our, our best band of brothers, like you're my best buddy. But you live in another place, for heaven's sakes. So I'm telling you about my life over the telephone. Well, I did this and I did this. And then you say, maybe because you care about me, how's your marriage? I say, it's going great. Oh, it's awesome. Okay, first of all, I will lie. Second of all, I won't know what's going wrong. Third of all, I may not have the courage to tell you. Uh, And by the way, we might just be having a quick little breezy conversation. Everything's great. It's awesome. I'm rich. My wife's great. All's good. Man, it's awesome. How are you? No. I need you to look in Bev's eyes. I need you to once in a while be in my home. If you're in my band of brothers, if you know who I am, if you're going to help me, if I'm going to help you, I don't want to hear you describe it. I want to be able to turn to your wife and say, hey, so how's he doing? Being a good man? You know, because I'm enough in a relationship with everybody that that's appropriate as opposed to me being a stranger right now. I need, like I said, mm-hmm. the guys to see what's going on. One time, Once in my home, one of my band of brothers uh, was had been in my home for a while. This was back when my son was young and, and in my house. And he walked up to me and said, you don't know what's going on with your son, do you? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're a fool. Will you mind if I talk to your son? I said, sure, I trust you completely. But he went, made an appointment with my son. They went to lunch. 
And he came back to me later and said, look, what your son's doing is not an addiction and, what, and it's not criminal, but I know it because I had the same thing when I was growing up. If you'll trust me, I'll fix this, um, but I don't want to have to tell you unless I have to. I said, I trust you completely. And wow. the transformation in my son over the next weeks was, was pretty amazing. Was some, something just lifted off of him and he seemed to have more confidence and seemed to be uh, more, more drawn to me, frankly. I mean, we didn't have a bad problem, but, but you know, just typical father-son growing up stuff. And my point is, this guy knew something going on in my home that I didn't know because he was sensitive to it, was aware of it. It wasn't criminal, it wasn't anything addiction, it wasn't anything horrible, but something that my son needed. So my point is, I need men close enough to my life that they're seeing it without me having to describe it to them. If the only things you know about my life are what I describe, you're not going to have an accurate view. And it's not that I'm a liar, but I will inadvertently lie. I will lighten it up. I'm not going to tell you that Bev and I had an argument last night or, you know, or yeah, I'm eating nine times more than I should be eating or my addiction to Oreos has taken over my life. I'm probably not going to tell you that stuff, but you see the belt loops being added to my belt or you see whatever the shirt being tight, or you see Bev walking around a little bit leery of me, or I'm just making all this up again. I just want to say, um, the point is you see it with your own eyes and now you can help me. And we just need to have transparent lives, uh, with a group of men. I'm not transparent with everybody on the planet. Uh, but I'm transparent with my band of brothers. And yeah. Bev, by the way, Bev knows exactly who to call. If there's an emergency, I travel a lot internationally. She knows exactly who to call. Or if I act up, which is, you know, that's not what we're really worried about. But I'm saying if something goes wrong, uh, she knows who to call. She knows who the guys are in, my, in our lives. And they'll be there. And they'll be there. And by the way, if being there means they got to kick my butt when they get there, trust me, that will happen. And they'll enjoy it. Um, these guys are tough. So I think every man's got to have that kind of band of brothers. And by the way, I think wives and children... Um, have greater confidence and security when a man's got a good band of brothers around him, not just for the outer perimeter kind of security stuff, um, but because their, hus their husbands and their fathers accountable to somebody. You got other men speaking in their lives. And, you know, the woman's not alone. The wife's not alone watching the guy and going, man, he's, he's falling apart. Nobody even knows. But the, the wife can have confidence that the, that the husband's got, you know, other men in his life that are, that are, that'll, kick his backside if something goes wrong. That's what every man needs. And, and by the way, encouragement. Yeah. You know, I've had, I've had wives I say, agree, I just wish somebody would encourage Fred and he hadn't got anybody in his life. And so I can do it short term at an airport or something, but this dude needs to pull some dudes into his life and, and have a band of brothers that has got that free fire zone I'm describing. Yeah. And you mentioned that they need to be close enough to, and when I hear you say that I'm hearing, they need to be in proximity to my world, not a thousand miles away, but they need to be engaged and close to me physically. They right? got they got to see me in 3D. They got to know who I am. Yep. That was yep. that was the problem with that photograph is that I'd never seen myself from those angles before. Because by the way, they tell us that when mm -hmm. we look in the mirror, we don't even see ourselves accurately. That's a, that's a slightly distorted image. I got to have guys who've got eyes on me from every perspective and and can help me. And by the way, this is not about Stephen Mansfield. This is about all of us encouraging each other. This is about all of us strengthening each other. Absolutely. It's about all of us coaching each other. One of the things I love about men. You put four men or, or, or six men on a basketball court they've never even met before. You divide them up in teams. What do they start doing? They start playing, but they immediately start coaching each other. Don't even know the guy's name. Never going to see him again. <laughs> Don't hog the ball. I'm open underneath. Go ahead and take that shot. We start coaching each other. And, um, and, that's, and, yep. and, that's the, and by the way, I, my basketball game, who cares whether I play good basketball or not, but I want to win in the game of life, so to speak. I want to win as a husband and a father and a Christian and – and, and, and as a professional and as a leader of men. So yeah, I want guys speaking into my life. And I'm, fortunately for me, I've got some very tough customers speaking into my life and they have, they've, they've made all the difference in the world. And that's really cool. And I, I think that men need that. It's a desperate, desperate call to men to have a band of brothers. It's, and we, that's our go-to as a ministry. Everything we write, everything we speak is driving men to that one thing and that's getting involved in a group of guys that love you and will call you out, up, and in. So, well, speaking about a group of guys that love you, your fifth one is the fire of love. Now, this one was interesting to me, and I want to ask you, 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 you said this, and I thought this was really interesting. You said, on aptitude tests with men and women, the results show that women are superior to men in every category except two. Now I knew this already. I mean, I, you know, I just, I see how women function. I'm like, man, they just function on a whole different level. But the two categories that men uh, can call their own are abstract thought and aggression. In other words, vision and drive. So how do vision and drive 
collaborate with this fire of love that you talk about? Well, much that a man is called to do is about love. I'm meant to love a wife. I'm meant to love kids. I, I, I want to be a patriot in my country and love my country to the extent, of course, that I can, you know, given certain factors of it. I, I want to love the men in my life. I want, I'm, I'm trying to turn a generation of, of manhood, and so I got to love men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You got to love your in-laws. You got to love all kinds of people. Well, with men, they have a secret tool they may not be aware of because love can dissipate. Love can go away. I'm not just talking about romantic love, mm -hmm. but love dissipates. You got to stoke that fire, baby. You got to you got to feed that thing. And one of the th one of the gifts that men has this have this ability of abstract thought um, is an ability to envision something in its grandeur, to see it mm -hmm. in its highest form. Abstract thought. So Bev is not just Bev. I'm going to make this up now. This is not what she does. You know, in her curlers, in her stained sweats. That's not how I think of her. I think of her as Guinevere. I think of her as, as you know, this noble, queenly creature. I love her. I adore her. I see her in the highest form. I keep an image of her in my heart. Not in the moment when she's got flour on her face and, you know, who knows, grandchild carpenter and five phone calls and busy. I mean, those we all have moments we don't look all that, you know, uh, hot or whatever, however you want to say it. But I'm talking about in the whole <laughs> course of life. I want to keep an image of who Bev is, the, what she's good at, what I fell in love with, how I, how I admire her, how she coddled that grandchild the other day and just loved them with her whole heart, how she does things with such skill and such grace, the beauty she's brought into my, to the home here, on and on and on, the higher good. And the same thing with my friends. I'll just make up a friend's name, Tom. I've got, Tom, it's just, you know, I know he can be a knucklehead once in a while like I can, but I, I, I think about how impressed I was when I first met him at, at his ability to communicate and how he, how he would, would meet a homeless guy on the street, just spend time with him and look him right in the eye. And so even though Tom may have hurt my feelings yesterday, I'm, I'm remembering who he is, the noble purposes God set for him and, and how inspired I was by him. And I, I believe that men are meant to do that. You know, just very quickly, when Jonathan, the king of, son of Saul, first met David, he said, it says he loved him as himself and made covenant with him. And yep. I, I want to love men as myself. I want to love my wife. And I'm not saying you'd play some fantasy game and imagine her as whoever, but I'm saying you keep the highest and noblest version of who they are in your heart. Otherwise, the, the, the nicks and the scratches and the cuts and the hurts of normal life can cause every kind of love to dissipate. You've got to hang on to the highest vision, and men have an ability to do that. And then once you've hung on to that higher vision, then that gift of aggression that is the other aptitude we're good at, you pursue. You pursue. You go after. You do good for. You create yeah. battle plans of love, so to speak. That's so good. Well, Way back in chapter one of the book, you had a quote that was very powerful, and I want to read it here. You said, it is a glorious thing to be a man. It is even more glorious to be a man among men. When a man knows his strength and his gifts and uses them, he understands his needs and satisfies them in righteous ways. He is a thing of beauty. Then you continued. He reflects the glory of God. He assures the magnificence of women. And I just love that because, you know, the Bible says the, the wife is the glory of man. You know, we had a guy in Denver, Colorado. I did a, I did a podcast on your ugly wife, not yours, but our, you know, sure. we look at our wife and she's become ugly to us. Sure. I told the guys that's on you. Yes. And this guy quit his job. His wife quit her job. They moved back East to where they found an area that fit them and, and everything changed in their marriage. And I think this is so important that that man needs a, see the big picture and get aggressive about it. Absolutely. So that is so, I love that chapter on love because your chapter on love, it threw me a curveball. I wasn't ready for where you went with it. Yeah. So I really do appreciate that chapter. You bet. So I will say though, for me personally, the, the chapter that impacted me the most or the fire was actually the fire of legacy that stirred something deep within me as a man. And, and uh, here's a powerful statement from that chapter. He said, many of the achievements of great men and great eras of men were fueled by the desire to protect the next generation and set it on its course. This is similar to the fire of heritage, but it is different. Can you talk to us about this principle 
of the fire of legacy? Sure. Heritage is being having your heart set in flame by what came before you. But legacy is what you leave after you're gone. It's what you write on the hearts of yes. your children. It's, it's, uh, and, it can, and by the way, it can take not only spiritual and, and uh, you know, literary form, so to speak, principle form, theological form, but it can also take practical form. I'm a big believer in guys having insurance, life insurance, and a big believer in wills, and a big believer in all of that. Uh, I, I, at my meetings, I make sure every man has got it. We actually have insurance people come to these meetings uh, and, and provide great deals to these guys. I don't, we don't have any piece of that financially, but my point is I, I believe in a legacy. Uh, men are made to think in terms of generations yet to come. Men are made to think in terms of what they leave after themselves. Uh, even a single man who doesn't have a wife or children uh, can think in terms of what he's writing on the next generation, can think in terms of, of, uh, of what he's leaving, what's he built, uh, what he, what's he contributed to. Did he, did he maybe give money to that, the wing of that hospital? Did he, did he fund something for boys? Did he, you know, whatever. Um, did he give his life in some way that's meaningful? And so some of, some of the men with the greatest legacies that I've known have been single men. So it's not just about your biological children or, or adopted children or what have you. But the issue is to be fueled by what you're leaving, to think in terms of the stream that you're allowing to flow into the next generation. And by the way, it's not just about money and it's not just about your name on buildings and it's not just about even where you've served. It can also be about what you don't do. Uh, I don't. I, I hope I'm not hurting, stepping on any toes here, but... I, I work in a very real way with men, and a lot of men I work with have had fathers who committed suicide. It's just the way it goes, or a brother. And I got to tell you, I'm sorry. Stepdad. I, I, I did not know that, Jim. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's part of the, your story at all. Um, but let me tell you, when someone's committed suicide in a family, that is at least going to be remarked on and remembered for generations. So, so I, I say that as a statement of the power of legacy. Legacy is a powerful thing. You can leave a good legacy or you can leave a negative legacy. Now, Stephen Mansfield has lived a pretty high impact life thus far. Hopefully, I'll have decades more of that. Let's just make up a horrible thought. If I kill myself this evening, that's pretty much all that's going to be discussed. My kids, my grandkids, yep. great-grandkids, every institution that I'm connected to, the body of Christ as a whole, since I'm a fairly public Christian, um, all of it's going to be tainted. People in D.C. will be discussing that because, of course, I work with My point is not to say Stephen Mansfield's famous. My point is to say that everything I've touched that I hope that I've ennobled and made better something suddenly gets crapped on, and it gets crapped on for generations. Now, my point's not just to dance on the issue of suicide, as horrible as that is, but it shows you the power of legacy. But turn it around. If I'm investing, if I'm giving, if I'm writing noble meaning on the hearts of my children, if I'm loving well, if I'm a generous man, if I'm giving to great causes, so I'm building things that will survive me, um, that sets me on fire. That's a fire in my soul. I love that. Yep. And, I, and I talk about it all the time. What's your legacy going to be? You know, I don't mind you knowing. I'm going to be 64 here in June of this year. All of you can send me gifts. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I expect to have decades more of impact. And I'm a fairly young 64-year-old. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I'm fairly young, fairly healthy, no big health problems. But I got to tell you, um, it's, it's, quite, it's quite possible for a guy like me just to retire and sit down and do nothing and leave no legacy at all. Um, I even know men who don't yeah. even bother with wills and, and, and uh, life insurance and stuff for their families. Leave them impoverished. When they die, it's like they end. So... My belief is, especially for the older guys, but the younger ones too, man, you got to think in terms of what you're going to leave. You know, you want to, you want to do something magnificent in American life and culture. You better get yourself a law degree. You better get yourself some education early on. You better, better learn some skills. I mean, this stuff can build up for decades, but, but just like a man's meant to be set afire by what comes before him in his family and people's line, um, he's meant to be set on fire by a noble purpose of impacting the next generation. Something that we'll only see from heaven, That's but still something that we'll see. So powerful. You know, you, you made a, a comment twice about life insurance, and I've been wrestling with that statement because I had a meeting with a businessman about a month, three weeks ago, and he's my life insurance guy. So I've had life insurance since I was 30 years old. And this guy actually said to me, Jim, if your men want life insurance, I will give them life insurance. And instead of taking the profit from their life insurance policy, I will donate that back to the Ministry of Men in the Arena. So I didn't know where else to ever put that, but you put it on a T for me. So guys, if you don't have life insurance, we've got a guy who's willing to give you life insurance. And instead of taking the profit for himself, he will donate that back to Men in the Arena. So hit us Fantastic. up at meninarena.org and we will definitely uh, reach out to you because I'm in wholehearted agreement with Stephen on this. You need to be looking out for those 
that you love the most. So the fifth, the seventh fire, and this will be our final fire of the day, which I, I, I knew you saved this for last. I knew it was coming. I knew it was going to be there. And it is the fire of God. And, and you just, you know, because I know a lot of your audience uh, vary in their levels of faith. Uh, and so I appreciated where you put this. And you said, apart from God, we have this aching hunger in our souls that we men in particular will try to fill with every kind of natural thing. But, and I'm going to let you finish the rest. But St. Augustine said, Lord, you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. So we we have a a drive on the inside of us, and it's meant to be filled by God. But I'll tell you, let me just go another direction just for a moment. What I want men to understand is that what distinguishes them as men, God made, God loves, God understands. You know, I believe you can't guilt a man to greatness. And a lot of men's ministry, a lot of talking to men is about guilting them. Toxic masculinity and don't touch that and porn and all that. And I yeah. believe I believe in holiness just like every other, every other Christian. But my point is that I love the fact that God made me and he understands everything about me. My sex drive, my thinking, my need for physical stuff, all of it. You know, when I'm down there lifting weights and just feeling like my body is right where, you know, doing what it's made to do, pushing on hard stuff. I feel like God's with me. And I want, so I want, first of all, I want men to understand that God is with them in the journey to noble manhood and he understands manhood and he loves who you are. You're a sinner. You got things you got to deal with, but he loves who you are. Second of all, though, what I really want you to do is connect to Jesus. And if you read the book, yes. On Fire, I, I describe Jesus' life in earthly, manly terms. Jesus had tough stuff. He was hunted his whole life. His father died early. His brothers didn't believe in him and mocked him. I could go on. He was betrayed by his closest friends. I mean, this guy had tough stuff in his life. Um, and at the same time, I'm sure he had to deal with Peter breaking wind and the guys throwing food at each other and whatever. And so, you know, the point is that that we need to recognize that God loved us enough to send his son, a, a heavenly being, into a human male form so that we could relate to him and be changed by him. And I've had a lot of guys read that book and write me later and say, man, I'm in love with Jesus now because he's, he's, he's a man. He's a man sitting, there's a man sitting at the right hand of God and he died for me. He's but perfect God, a perfect man. The Absolutely. And so all that to say, I I love I left it for last not because I wanted to sneak an altar call in on the guys but because I wanted them to be challenged at the conclusion of the book <laughs> that that God God made him God loves yeah. them and God wants to set them on fire to be great men. Yeah, it, I would say it definitely was not a Jesus trap. You've been talking about Jesus the whole book. Yeah. So it wasn't like, oh my gosh, he's throwing in Jesus here. It was just a very natural conclusion to everything that you'd built up so far. So again, Stephen, um love your writing. I'm going to get the Booker T. Washington book, and this may sound weird to you, but I've always had a dream of naming my next dog Booker because I just, I'm a huge fan of Booker T. Washington. I've read a small autobiography of his, but I, I look forward to reading yours. Uh, you're just a great author, and I, I just really appreciate you having on the show. Hey, how can our men uh, get a, uh, learn more about you and what you're doing? You have a website? Yeah, check out check me and all of what I do is at stephenmansfield.tv. Pretty easy. My name and .tv. And then go on to greatman.tv, our website, and you'll find out all about what we're doing, the podcast, the causes, the things we're doing internationally, and so on. So Stephen Mansfield, Stephen spelled the only way that ought to be legal, by the way, with a P-H, stephenmansfield.tv, and then greatman.tv. <laughs> oh, man, thanks so much for coming on our show. Guys, listen up. What is next for you? Let's get our boots on the ground here. What's the next step you're going to take because of what you heard today? So the seven fires that Stephen wrote about in his book, Men on Fire, are the fire of heritage, the fire of battle, the fire of destiny, the fire of friendship, the fire of love, the fire of legacy, and the fire of God. Which one of these demands your immediate attention? Hey, guys, head on over to menandarena.org. When you can, grab your free copy of my book, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell Their Sons and Daughters, and sign up to join one of our many virtual teams by clicking on the Join Our Program Now button. Until next time. Feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man.
You've been listening to the Men in the Arena podcast. If you hunger to be your best version, then join thousands of men from around the world in our Men in the Arena forum on Facebook. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of biblical manhood. Make sure to explore our website at meninthearena.org, sign up for the weekly equipping blast, and take advantage of our many free resources designed to help you become your best version of a man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, Everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.